0: Good morning, saints. I pray you're well today. If you have your Bible, please open to Hebrews chapter 6. I want to read verses 4 through 12, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into our passage for the day. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. The author writes, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us this Lord's Day as we gather Around your word, even though separated geographically, Lord, we ask that you would bind us together in your spirit that we might hear the weight and the hope that we find in this passage. I pray, Lord, you'd be gracious with every single member at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that you would bless them with peace in the midst of this trial that you would grow them deep in their faith and their love for you and for Christ and for one another, and that you would use this time of teaching, of preaching, to bless our homes. We pray, Lord, for our country, for the wisdom of our leaders, for the economy, and for those who are unable to work. We pray, Lord, for those who are in the midst of battling the coronavirus, for those who have lost loved ones. There are so many prayers to be lifted up to you, Father. We ask that you would be gracious with your people in the midst of this trial, not only growing us in our faith, Lord, but providing for our daily needs. I ask, Lord, that you would use this time and this sinner to bless your church for your glory, in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. (sighs) Uh, You know, it's not uncommon that I, Lori and Josh in particular, now find me talking to myself. And now I'm doing it on a weekly basis before camera. Um, My hope is that it's pleasing to the Lord for you to receive messages, even in this strange format. The passage that we have today, the title of the sermon is Staying Faithful, and it is a really difficult passage, not only to hear, but to get our hands on, and so I pray you're going to be patient with me, Um, maybe pause it now and then in order to contemplate some of these truths. When people love each other, I mean, when they really love each other, there's a deep desire to grow in the knowledge of that person that you love. Lori and I had the incredible blessing of celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary last week. And by God's grace, we still continue to grow in our love and knowledge of one another. In fact, I just learned recently that her communion name, it's not uncommon in the Catholic Church to give names for communion. Her communion name was Elizabeth Elizabeth. I just learned that recently. And for those of you who were on our our prayer time, Kirk and Sarah talked about um, potentially naming their next daughter, Elizabeth II. Three weeks ago, we were introduced to the enigmatic and yet influential Old Testament priest-king, McKill's And the author wants to Bring him into the picture, and we're going to see in the next few weeks him develop this character from the Old Testament. He wants to reveal something about Christ, information about Christ, to increase our love for him, and he's going to do that through this Old Testament priest king. The author wants to establish firmly that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he's our, our high priest that intercedes on our behalf daily, even this day. And he wants to do that by revealing Jesus coming from the office after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem and the worshiper of the most high God. We, we looked at him two weeks ago in Genesis 14. This is the priest that went out and he blessed Abraham, prayed over Abraham and then Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils of war in the battle with the king of Elam. But before the author can make this brilliant biblical theology and this connection to increase our love for Christ between Jesus and Melchizedek, he has a rebuke for the church receiving this letter. He said that they are dull of hearing, only wanting to be milk-fed, not desiring the solid food of God's Word, not wanting to go on to maturity. They've become lazy. Instead, they should be teachers. But the author says they still need what he calls the elementary doctrine of Christ, the ABCs of faith. Now, this rebuke started back in chapter 5, verse 11, and it it ends with a word of encouragement at the end of chapter 6, which we will look at Next week. And right smack dab in the middle of this rebuke. You have verses four through six. Some of the most difficult passages. Certainly I think the most difficult passage in Hebrews. And some of the most difficult verses. In the entire New Testament. Verses four through six talk about a group of people. People in the church. Followers of Christ. Who have fallen away and become irreconcilable, no way to come back in, no way to be saved. And our first response to these verses from a Reformed perspective is often overly simplistic. We, We simply conclude that because our doctrine teaches the perseverance of the saints, that once you're saved, you're always saved, we assume the author cannot be talking about real Christians in these verses. Our Arminian brothers use verses four through six to argue against the perseverance of the saints. They argue that if you can choose according to your own free will to be saved, then you can choose according to your own free will not to be saved. But Before we can attach any theological construct to these verses or any other verses for that matter, we want to do our exegetical theology, and our biblical theology. We want to extract from the text what it says, and we want to know how that fits into the big picture of God. And so I'd like to do that this morning, and again, it's going to require your patience. These are some of the hardest verses, which means we have to spend a little more time exegeting them properly. And I'd like to do that because even though these verses are difficult, they provide one of the highest warnings in the New Testament to those who profess Christ. And in so doing, they reiterate the call from two weeks ago. Look at verse 1 again. Hebrews 6, verse 1. To leave the call, to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Why? Not only because it's pleasing to the Lord, not only because growing in our spiritual maturation blesses our brothers and sisters in Christ but because to remain in a state of spiritual immaturity may lead one to fall away from the living God and not be able to be restored, not even by God himself. So let's do that this morning by looking at our passage from a covenantal perspective because it's written in covenant language. The covenant that God established with his people and the consequences of His people breaking that covenant and not being able to be reconciled again. So, three covenant teachings. Number one, covenant conditions. Number two, covenant curse. And number three, covenant assurance. Covenant conditions, what are they? Covenant curse, why is it there? And covenant assurance, what hope can we have of of this covenant making its way all the way to the end? So, number one, covenant conditions. A covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement between two people or two parties. In the context of God and his church, it's the covenant that defines our relationship. Yahweh being our God and we being his people. How we are to relate to one another. And the author of Hebrews uses this covenant language to highlight the importance of pressing on and going on to maturity Because he's arguing here that to remain milk-fed, to reject the solid food of God's Word, to not grow in our faith, may lead to catastrophic consequences. According to this passage, he's talking about a group of people in God's redemptive plan who by all appearances have come to a saving grace and not only fall away from that, But they become irreconcilable. They break the covenant to such a degree that they cannot be brought back in. It's an irreparable break. Look at verses 4 through 6 in Hebrews 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, when you take out these five adjectival participles, these characteristics that explain this group, you come up with this simple statement, listen, It is impossible to restore those people to repentance. Now we'll look at who those people are in a minute. But first I want us to get the the magnitude of this warning. Whoever these people are, saved or unsaved, turning away from God, according to this passage, results in the inability to be brought back in ever. It is a breaking of the covenant relationship, so grievous and so severe that reconciliation is not possible. That first generation of God's people in the wilderness, they experienced this exact teaching. They became so rebellious, so disobedient of heart, in spite of of all the miracles and all the provisions, in spite of God's promises, Him speaking to them from the mountaintop, Him being in their presence as a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32, as Moses reflects upon the 40 years, that they, the people, refused to believe the Lord their God. And so God swore to them what? Deuteronomy one thirty-five: not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. That first generation of Israelites set free from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt, led out into the wilderness by God, to become God's people. He called them his people. That first generation rebelled against God to such a degree, they broke the covenant to such a degree that they experienced a permanent falling away. They died in the wilderness. And we know that that represented, that was a metaphoric representation of eternal damnation. They did not enter the promised land. They were lost forever. This is the picture, I believe, that the author of Hebrews has in mind as he's writing these verses. Men and women in the church, men and women who have been immeasurably blessed seeing and experiencing the power and presence of the living God, tasting firsthand Jesus Christ. But just like that first generation of Israelites, they did not remain faithful. And in their rebellion, in their refusing to stay with Christ, they too fell away. The result being an impossibility, this passage says, the impossibility of restoring them again to repentance. So the warning is severe. I would say the highest warning possible. Now the hardest part about this passage is the description of this group. The author of Hebrews uses five descriptive qualities Adjectives that he uses, four that are positive, one that are negative. And when you put them all together, this is essentially what he's saying. He's describing this group of people as once true believers who turn away from Christ and lose their salvation, never to be restored to the faith again. The problem with this rendering is all those other New Testament passages that tell us quite clearly that once you're in Christ, you cannot be lost. Look with me at how the author describes this group of people. Look at verse 4. He starts off by saying, Those who have once, and that, that describes the, the five qualities, those who have once, past tense, definitive past tense occurrences in the lives of these people being described. All you will notice are experiences that true believers have as well. Verse four, those who have once been enlightened. The word enlightened is used metaphorically throughout the New Testament, oftentimes to describe God removing the veil of darkness and bringing someone out of the darkness into the light of Christ through the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter one, verse nine and following, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now listen to this. Through the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, same word, enlightenment, through the gospel. These people have been enlightened and they have once tasted the heavenly gift. That word taste, it literally means a real, personal, intimate experience. They had tasted the heavenly gift which of course is the free gift of redemption that comes from God. Thirdly, we're told that they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now the the word shared in the Greek there is metakos and it means, and this is important, it means a change due to sharing, specifically from being an active partaker with. And lastly, this enlightened, redeemed, partakers of the Holy Spirit group, they have tasted the goodness of, Of the word of God, they experience the word of God personally, its power to save, to feed, to sustain the soul, and they've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've seen the supernatural power the Holy Spirit has exercised in their midst. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, the author said, God has bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. They've experienced that these four experiences describe the internal and external aspects of conversion the reality of personal salvation enjoyed by those people that are being dressed they're spiritually enlightened they're redeemed and dwelt by the holy spirit feeding on god's word experiencing his power in other words we can't simply read this warning and dismiss these people by saying these were all false converts in the church they didn't know Christ. They were faking in their faith. Not according to these verses. But then we get to the last descriptive. Descriptive number five. They're falling away. And in falling away, being condemned. And as Bible-believing Christians, we're forced to reconcile. How can this be? This once spiritually enlightened, redeemed, indwelt by the Spirit, feeding on God's Word, experiencing God's power, group of people. Look at verse 6. We are told, have, past tense, have fallen away. Again, in, in the Greek, this is a decisive moment of commitment to apostasy. He's describing a group of people who have turned away from the living God. They have renounced their faith. They have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord, it is an expression that reveals the total attitude of the person, culminating in the deliberate renunciation of God Himself. It is the willful, now listen, it is the willful and permanent severing of the covenant relationship on behalf of the person. Apparently, true believers rejecting Christ and becoming unredeemable. Now, if you're struggling with what this is saying, then you're in good company. The church for 2,000 years has struggled with these verses. The church has presented several views to try to reconcile verses 4, 5, and 6 in Hebrews 6 with the rest of the New Testament and even the Old Testament. There are five major views that the evangelical church still works around today to try to make sense of these you have the loss of salvation view and that's, that's the easiest to see. If they were true, true believers and they reject Christ and are unsaved then that's a loss of salvation. Our Arminian brothers use this passage to argue their point that the perseverance or preservation of the saints is not biblical. So you have the loss of salvation view. You have the hypothetical view. The idea that the author is simply stating something that could happen but would not happen. You have the test of genuineness view, and that goes all the way back to Calvin, and those in that group argue these are not true believers. Sounds like they are, but they were not true believers. The genuineness of their faith was tested, and they failed. Number four, you have a popular one, the means of salvation view. That's held by people like Schreiner and Erickson. And they argue this. They argue that believers are capable of rejecting Christ and renouncing their faith. But by God's grace, they will not. God will preserve them to the end. And then you have, lastly, number five, the loss of rewards view. And that's the idea that they are true believers, but what they lose is not their salvation. They just lose their eternal reward. Now, each view has some plausibility, but each view also has many difficulties. The loss of salvation view fundamentally is problematic because the New Testament teaches over and over again that a true believer cannot not be saved. John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now listen, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's eternal assurance. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guaranteer of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Once saved, all was saved. And then Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter one verse six, "I am sure of this: that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." So it's a really hard sell that these are believers who lost their salvation in light of all the New Testament teaching saying that that can't happen. The hypothetical view and the means of grace or the means of salvation are problematic because this is a severe warning. He warned the church in chapter three. He warns them here in chapter six. He's gonna address it again in chapter 10. But if it's only hypothetical, then... It's not a real good warning. It doesn't help us a lot if it's an impossible possibility. The test of genuineness view is problematic. Those who hold on to what Calvin thought because this passage clearly sounds like the author's talking about true believers. So you gotta twist the verses a bit and certainly the the original language. And the loss of rewards view is difficult because the consequences described the impossibility of being restored to repentance and then the verses that follow in verse 8 that it describes these people as being cursed and burned. That sounds more like eternal judgment in light of all the other passages that are parallel than the losing of a heavenly reward. So we work through these five major views and you should be asking where does that leave us? I've had the blessing of working on this now in great detail for two weeks and I do not want to shoehorn this passage into a theological construct because that makes it comfortable. I do not believe because the Bible clearly teaches that a true believer can lose his or her salvation. And so we cannot conclude that the author of Hebrews is teaching this. It would not be consistent with God's word. At the same time, now listen, saints, because most of you I know are Reformed, we cannot conclude and we do not want to diminish the warning simply because we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We do not want to diminish this warning as anything other than real and dangerous for all who profess Christ because we think that I can never be lost. We can never be lost. When speaking of the end times himself, Jesus made it very clear. Matthew chapter 24, listen. He said, many will fall away. Those inside the church, many will fall away. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, Listen to what he said to the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2, 26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Salvation and rule, Jesus says, is guaranteed to those who he says keeps my works to the end. Now the disciples earlier in the ministry, John chapter 6, They came to Christ and they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you remember? Jesus answered them, now listen closely. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And I think the weight of this passage now becomes clear. There's a bottom line to this. Until you make it to the end, until you make it all the way into the presence of Christ, You must do the work of Christ. You must maintain and grow your faith in Him. Do you remember the teaching from Hebrews chapter 3, the last sermon I preached when we were all together here, right before our shelter in place? Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The author says, take care, brothers, in the church. Be careful that you don't fall away. Then he said in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Here's the condition. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm, how long? To the end. Hold our faith to the end. And that means, as Reformed believers, we cannot fall back on our once saved, always saved Doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Reformed doctrine requires spiritual maturation. If you are thinking there can't be any consequences for me, I'm saved, I'm secure, I can't be lost. I would argue that very thinking violates the gospel itself. It shows that there's a gaping hole in your understanding of what it means to be redeemed by grace and sanctified by the Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.9, He, God, has saved us and called us to a holy life. We're called to live a holy life of faith. Becoming dull of hearing. Becoming satisfied with spiritual milk instead of the solid food of God's Word. The author saying, you do that, you do that, and you may find yourself renouncing your faith altogether you may find yourself turning away from Christ and in so doing, according to this passage, becoming unreconcilable. No way back in. Now in the end, when Christ comes again in glory and He judges the living and the dead, in the end, we will know who really knew Him and who did not. Those inside the church who somehow they tasted and they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and they fed upon God's word and they were enlightened to some degree, we will know that they never knew him, that they were not part of God's elect in the end. But until then, until that day, the author is calling all professing Christians. Look at verse one again, Hebrews six. To leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, lest you leave Christ completely and go on to eternal damnation. That's the warning. That's the condition of the covenant that we remain faithful. So first we've seen, I pray, the covenant condition. A sustained faith in Jesus Christ is necessary to the end to be saved. So the second question we face from this passage is why is it impossible to restore those who have fallen away? Point number two, the covenant curse. I pray you're still with me. The covenant curse. It is impossible to restore those who fall away. Look at the latter part of verse six since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's a terrifying verse. The crucifixion of the Son of God was the consummate rejection of Jesus as Savior. The exact opposite of faith would be the crucifixion of Christ upon the cross. In John chapter 3.17, God said... We're told God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So to take the Son of God, and to reject Him as the Messiah, as the Savior, and then to murder Him by nailing Him to a Roman cross, we see the pinnacle of human evil. We see the consummation of faithlessness. And that's how evil Listen, that's how evil this act of renouncing Christ is according to the inspired author of the book of Hebrews. To once know Christ and then to reject Him as the Christ is wicked beyond measure. The verse literally says, verse 6 again, They are crucifying in themselves the Son of God. They are crucifying in themselves the Son of God. Not literally crucifying Christ again. Christ died once for the forgiveness of sins. He died, he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. Rather, the person who comes and experiences all the blessings of the Lord, described here in verses four and five, and then turns away from God, rejects Jesus Christ, that person in himself expresses his consummate hatred toward God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is very much in the company of Judas. Judas was, without question, enlightened by the gospel. Judas was, without question, he tasted the gift of salvation. He shared in the Holy Spirit Judas fed and obeyed the word of God. He experienced the powers of the age to come, he himself casting out demons. And yet, in the end, we know what happened. He turned away from the heavenly blessings and he rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. He sold the Son of God out to the Sanhedrin to be crucified, all for 30 pieces of silver. My beloved, coming to Christ and then turning away from Christ is the most treasonous act in the universe. Worse than never coming at all. We're told in 2 Peter chapter two, speaking of this miserable condition, if if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Now listen, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn, back, turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. And then in verse 22 of 2 Peter 2, we're told, of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. So first we see that it is impossible to restore to a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. Those who reject Christ because rejecting Christ is the pinnacle sin. But there's another reason. We're told those who reject Christ cannot be restored because it holds the son of God up to contempt. No greater damage, I would argue. No greater damage is done in God's name than when those when people come into the church they get baptized, they join the fellowship, they participate in all the blessings that God gives, and then they renounce Christ and leave the church. In less than 24 hours, our Lord, on the night that He was betrayed, then leading into the day of His crucifixion, He was falsely accused, He was mocked, He was spit upon, He was beaten unrecognizable, and then He was nailed naked to... A Roman cross, he was crucified. Crucifixion, the time of our Lord, was the ultimate form of humiliation and contempt. The ultimate. The Jews knew, according to Deuteronomy 21 23, that anyone who is hung on a pole, hung on a tree, is under God's curse. And that's why they mocked him. They mocked Christ while he was on the cross. We're told in Matthew 27, verse 40, you, they said to him, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. They mocked him and they ridiculed him even as he died for their sins. Those who once professed Jesus as Lord and then fall away from the living God openly denounce Christ to the world. And in so doing, they not only partner with Judas, they partner with the Jews who on that day crucified and humiliated Christ. They participate in the humiliation of Christ all over again. Those outside the church, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, have held the name of the Lord in contempt. But the author here is revealing a whole new level of evil and deceit One who comes into the church and enjoys the blessings of Christ and then leaves the church and denounces Christ, exposing him to public ridicule and shame. The precious Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, they malign his name in rejecting him. The beautiful Savior who gave his life as a ransom of many. Instead of his lovely, beautiful name being lifted up and worshiped, and praised, and glorified as it should be. The person who comes in and then leaves, brings that name low, and maligns him. They cannot be restored because they are crucifying Christ again in their hearts and minds. They cannot be restored because they are they are condemning him, and they're humiliating him again to the world but I believe the primary reason that the author of Hebrews says it is impossible to restore, to reconcile those back into a relationship with God who have fallen away and rejected Christ is not because God is lacking grace or power. It's because those who reject Christ, now listen, reject the only means by which a sinful man can be reconciled. Those who reject Christ reject the only basis upon which repentance can be and is extended by God to man. The author of Hebrews provides an agricultural illustration here to make his point. Look at verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that has often falls on it and that produces and it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So here's the covenant relationship. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The covenant promise that that God made to that second generation that would enter the land. The first generation died in the wilderness because they rebelled against God. That second generation, listen to this promise, Deuteronomy 11.11, the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. In other words, the promise of blessings and bearing much fruit is attached to faithful, loving obedience by God's people to God. The promise, the covenant promise of bearing thorns and thistles, faithlessness, ends in a curse. And that curse being fields that are worthless and near, ready to be burned. This should... Hearken you back to Genesis chapter 3. This should take us right back to the dialogue that God had with Adam because of Adam's rebellion. Genesis 3, 17, because God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you the message would have been crystal clear to the author's audience. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the members of that congregation, they had experienced the blessing of God's salvation. They had heard and believed and embraced the covenant promises, the forgiveness of sin, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the indwelling, they had experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life and ruling with Christ all given freely to them through the cross. But they also would have understood that if they broke that covenant, if they were to fall away from God by rejecting Christ, they would receive the covenant curse instead of the covenant blessing. And they would make themselves, individually or as a people, a worthless field, according to verse 8, bearing only thorns and thistles and fit only what? To be burned for eternity. My beloved, rejecting the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross leaves the sinner fully exposed to the curse of the law. Jesus Christ, the sinless man, ascended the cross that he might bear that curse in our place so that we, sinners deserving of the curse, can receive grace and, And love instead. That's what makes the sacrifice of Christ and the cross so beautiful to Christians. Paul said in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us, listen, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. But if you reject Jesus as the curse, crucified, risen Savior... If you experience the grace of God coming into the community of believers, tasting, experiencing the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the light that comes through Christ, if you do that and then you turn away and you reject Christ, you remain cursed and cannot be restored to repentance. Coming to Christ and then turning away is the ultimate expression of evil. Coming to Christ and then rejecting Christ leaves a man utterly lost, because without Christ, repentance towards God is impossible. So we've seen one, the covenant conditions, number two, the covenant curse. And lastly, and I'll close number three, the covenant assurance. We've seen the conditions. Faith in Christ to the end. We've seen the curse that comes on those who reject Christ. Why that curse comes. And number three, what assurance can we have? What assurance can we have? Where does this leave us? What assurance can a believer have of persing, persevering all the way to the end? The author turns the warning, thank God, to a word of encouragement expressing his optimism for the church to which he was writing. And I want you to notice, it's not in their ability to stay the course. It's in the great work that God is doing and being evidenced in their lives as a church. The work that he's already accomplished and continues to do. Look at verse nine. The author says, though we speak in this way, this way being with a severe warning, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, beloved, We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So it had become necessary for the author to issue them a severe warning against apostasy. Why? They had become dull of hearing. They were satisfied with spiritual milk. There's sufficient evidence here, though, and this is the great news of the gospel, That this community, in this community, God had done and was continuing to do a great work amongst them. They were not lost. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The warning was real and certainly hard for them to hear. But verses 9 and 10 now change the focus from the warning of apostasy and the danger of eternal damnation to the gospel power of love, to the transformative power of gospel love. Did you notice that the author expressed his love for them in verse 9? He said, though we speak in this way, that warning, yet in your case, beloved, that's the only time he uses that phrase in the letter, beloved, We feel sure of better things. Better things for the church. And then he speaks of their expressed service and love for one another. Look at verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in what? In serving the saints. And then he says, as you still do. You have been doing it and you are currently doing it. It was their real ongoing, gospel-centered service and love for one another that enabled him to say, in verse nine, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, he's he's not providing them a false assurance of faith. Their love for one another, listen, saints, their love for one another testified to the author and testifies to God of the power of the gospel that had captivated their hearts and minds, that they really were true believers in the faith. You see, my friends, when members of a local church, when members of a body just like Cambrian Park Baptist Church love one another as the Bible prescribes, when we serve one another, when we pray for one another, when we disciple one another, when we meet the financial needs of one another, in this church, it not only glorifies God, it not only blesses all who are present, all brothers and sisters in the church, but according to this passage, for those who are exercising, faithfully exercising this service and love to one another, it is an assurance of our faith. It's how we can say, yes, I know I am in Christ. In other words, our love for one another, according to the Bible, is the best way to know that you are doing the work of Jesus, that you are remaining in the faith. Look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, service and love, the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now we're gonna look at, we're gonna pick up verse 11 and 12 again next week as we look at the the patience of Abraham and how that led to him obtaining the promises of God. But as we close, I want you to see the great connection between the assurance of faith and the love, the very practical, real love we are to have for one another. That's the connection the author is trying to make The warning not to become milk-drinking dull of hearing Christians is severe. If we do not, according to verse 1, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to, to, to maturity, it could lead to our falling away from Christ, rendering ourselves unreconcilable. On the other hand, the author is saying, when believers find themselves serving and loving one another as covenant members in covenant relationship with God and the church, he says two immeasurable blessings will emerge. First, when Christians love and serve one another out of the love that God has poured out in them, when they become a vessel an outpouring of love to the body of Christ because of the love that God continues daily to pour out in them, it provides, look at verse 11 again, the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance. Our loving and serving one another is proof that the gospel has taken root in our lives and gone deep. The apostle John made this painfully clear in First John chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. Listen. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he writes in verse 14, we know, listen to this, with all your might, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So when you look back at verses four and five, you say, well, how do I know I've been enlightened? How do I know that I I share in the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I've tasted the word of God and I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I've tasted that heavenly gift of truly being redeemed? The author of Hebrews, the New Testament, makes it very clear. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Secondly, in serving and loving your brothers and sisters in the local church, you are going on to maturity. The very thing that the author is calling his church to, the very thing that he's warning them against of drinking the spiritual milk and remaining sluggish. Love your brothers and sisters and you go on to maturity. It is not only a means of assurance, it is a means of grace to sanctify us and make us holy getting off a diet of milk, getting on a diet of solid food by serving and loving our fellow brothers and sisters. A few verses later in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle writes this, listen. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then he says in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. You want assurance of your faith? It will not be based upon your verbal profession. It will not be based upon your church attendance or your baptism. It will not be based upon your morning devotion. According to the word of God, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God if we love in deed and in truth. So, what will reassure our hearts before God other than love? Real love. What evidence is there that we are of the truth, that we are doing the work of Christ, that we're still in the faith? It's love. It's your love for God. It's experiencing that love that God has for you. It is looking around at your life and your brothers and sisters and expressing that love. Indeed and in truth. Real, practical, daily expression of the love that resides in your heart. This is not an external manifestation that you're trying to work up. It's you loving God and being loved by God, and in so doing, having a deep desire to love one another. So I ask as I close, my beloved, how well are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? How well are you loving them right now as we find ourselves isolated? Have you faithfully prayed for the members of this church, for their spiritual well-being, for their protection in Christ? Have you reached out to your brothers and sisters? Have you made the phone call, send the emails, Texted those that were on your heart and mind? Have you brought the words of encouragement? That is the love that's expressed indeed and in truth. Have you done that, my beloved? How well have you loved your brothers and sisters at Cambrian Park Baptist Church over these past two or three years? Do you meet with people regularly outside of Sunday and Wednesday? Are you involved in a discipleship relationship in the church? Are you engaged in ministry, working for the kingdom, serving one another? Are you ministering with your brothers and sisters, enjoying the sweet fellowship that comes from working side by side with a brother or sister in the church? Is your home a place of hospitality? where you bring the saved and the unsaved together to be nourished and cherished and grown up in the faith by you. Real, practical love. My beloved, what evidence do you have in your life of this assurance? Were you able to answer these questions affirmatively? Affirmatively? Or did they bring conviction? And if they brought conviction, I pray that you would not turn away from that, but that you would go to your knees in prayer and you would ask God to give you that love that compels you rightly to love one another. If you are not engaged in this love relationship in the church, the Bible makes it clear, there's no assurance of your salvation. But if you rightly have that love for one another, and that love is expressed in more than just a word or a hello, but indeed and in truth, then you can hear this warning in Hebrews chapter six and say, I know that I'm doing the work of Christ. I know that I'm still in the faith because I'm still loving those that God has redeemed. Friends, I pray that you do not let your reformed theology and your belief in the preservation the perseverance of the saints to cause your heart to grow cold. This warning is real. We're going to see it again expanded on in Hebrews chapter 10. So I will call you, as the author of Hebrews called his church, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, on to holiness, on to loving one another with all your might not only for the glory of God, not only for the blessing of His church and the testimony of His church to the world, but for the preservation of your own soul, for the preservation of your own soul. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, He has now, past tense, reconciled in His body of flesh By his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23 If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to hear this warning rightly. We don't want to be a people who use our theology to dismiss the potential of those that have come into your church and have experienced the power of your Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of Christ and the light of Christ and the word and the work that your spirit does. We do not want to be a people who dismiss this warning because of the doctrine, the glorious doctrine of the perseverance of your children. So I ask, Lord, that you would bless us this morning with the ability to hear this warning and to heed it rightly. That we would guard our hearts and minds, that we would guard the hearts and minds of our brothers and sisters through prayer and through service and through real acts of love that we might not fall away from you, the living God, that we might not renounce Christ before the end, before we make it home, and in so doing find ourselves unreconcilable. Father, make this warning real to us, I pray. And then by your grace and mercy, cultivate a love in our hearts so deep and so real that we find ourselves desiring and doing the very real biblical love you've commanded us to do. Serving and loving, ministering indeed and in truth to those that you've redeemed, to those that Christ died for and brought here to this place, to this church. I ask, Lord, that you would give us real assurance not because of some profession many years ago or because of some works-based theology we've smuggled into our faith, but because the very real love that we have for you and that you pour out in us is rightly daily expressed in our love for one another. Father, even in our isolation, I pray that you would radically transform our hearts, that we might become that people so deeply moved and rightly changed by the gospel of grace that our love overflows to you and to one another. I ask that you would do this for your glory. I ask that you do it to bless this church. I ask that you would do it so that we might be a testimony of the world. And I ask that you would do it so that you could give my brothers and sisters and myself that full assurance to the end that we know that we belong to Christ and because we belong to Christ, we can never be lost. I ask this in his precious name, amen.